In his sermon series this past month, Father Paul has been reminding us as a church that we are called to mission. We have been given a mission that is nothing less than participating in God's own work of reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. We've been called to spread the good news of the forgiveness of sins and to live out the kingdom of God here and now among our neighbors by loving them as God has loved us. That is the mission we have been given. That is the mission of the church. And the history of the church is the history of that mission. The record of how the church has done and fulfilling the task that it has been given. I very much enjoy reading about church history. If you ask my wife, Rachel, she might tell you I like reading about it a little too much because I've spent the first 10 years of our marriage in graduate school studying it, which means she has had to follow me along, including up for the last six years, we have spent in a little apartment with our children in wintry New England, which was quite a shock for us Southerners, all the snow and the ice, the cold. But thankfully, we got out just in time. I uh, looked this past week at the weather in Boston, and it was in the mid-80s all week. It was just awful. <laughs> so thank goodness we made it to Texas. In all seriousness, though, I do enjoy studying church history and learning about how the church has fared in fulfilling its mission. It's not all good news, of course. There are lots of times when Christians have failed, lots of times when we have remained silent instead of sharing the good news, and even more times when, ashamedly, instead of living according to the principles of mercy and justice and love that characterize the kingdom of God, Christians have chosen to justify and themselves perpetuate violence, injustice, and greed. But that being said, there are also many examples throughout church history of Christians who have been faithful to their mission. The history of the church is filled with missionaries who dedicated their lives to sharing the good news, with martyrs who remain faithful even unto the end, with parents who discipled their children and pastors who shepherded their flock, with citizens who loved their neighbors as themselves, we are indebted to these Christians, both the known and the unknown, because the fact that we are sitting here today is a result of their faithfulness. And their example can be and ought to be an inspiration for us. But sometimes thinking about all those great Christians of the past can also have another effect. It can be a little anxiety inducing because when you think about it, you start to realize that the mission of the church has been handed down from generation to generation. And for it to succeed, it requires that the next generation should take up the task, sort of like relay racers who are handing off the baton to one another. And it's one thing to admire those who ran in the past and how well they run. It's another to realize you're getting the baton and it's your turn. They have played their part in the mission that Christ gave the church, and now they've handed that mission on to us. But that does not need to be a source of anxiety or fear for us or something that produces guilt about how we may be failing. 
We need not worry about whether or not we are up to the task or fret over what might happen should we fail. We can take the baton from those who ran before us with confidence. That's the message of my sermon today. And the text of the message is the passage we read from 2 Kings chapter 2, the story of Elijah handing on his mantle to the prophet Elisha. Elijah is one of the most famous prophets in the history of Israel. In Jewish tradition, he is considered often to be the greatest and most prototypical of all the prophets. And Elijah's life sets the pattern for what the mission of a prophet looks like. We're first introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, where he shows up out of nowhere to go tell the idolatrous king Ahab that there is a famine, a drought that is going to come on the land, and it will last until he himself, until Elijah says otherwise. Then Elijah leaves, and he hides out for about three years. Now, needless to say, Ahab can't stand Elijah. The next time he sees him, he gives him a new nickname, you troubler of Israel. It's almost like a job description for Elijah, although maybe more appropriately, the troubler of the king of Israel, because that's what Elijah does. He troubles Ahab. He condemns Ahab. He takes 400 and some prophets of the god Baal that Ahab's wife Jezebel has brought in and he slaughters them. One time he goes to Ahab and denounces him for using his power as a king to steal a vineyard. And he tells Ahab that for what he's done, God's going to kill him and his wife Jezebel is going to be eaten by the dogs. Now, as you might imagine, this sort of behavior does not endear Elijah to the king. Quite the opposite. Ahab calls Elijah his enemy, and Ahab's wife Jezebel tries to have him assassinated. So Elijah's life, the life of the prophet, is not an easy one. He fears for his life. He has to go into hiding. At one point, he subsists for 40 days and 40 nights on nothing but a single meal of bread and water. And another time, he actually has to rely on the charity of a poor widow. And on top of all of that, his calling as a prophet leaves him feeling very isolated and very alone. We know this because at one point, Elijah tells God that he thinks he, Elijah, is the only person in all of Israel who has not abandoned God for worshiping, to worship the prophet Baal. God corrects him on that point, in that occasion. Turns out Elijah's not quite so unique in his fidelity as he thought, but still, the fact that he just thinks that, the fact that he tells God that shows that he feels very, very alone. You might think that it's very difficult for that reason to find a replacement for Elijah. Can you imagine writing the job description for his replacement? It would have to say something like, wanted adult Israelites to be the mouthpiece of God. Ideal candidate must be willing to endure long stretches of isolation and harsh circumstances, go into hiding for years at a time, and be generally despised by all the most important people. On top of that, this job 
pays nothing, and you may require at times to solicit support from poor needy widows. Sounds very appealing. But turns out he does find replacement. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God tells Elijah to go anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to be his successor. We're not told what it is that makes Elisha a good candidate. My personal theory is that God is concerned about people remembering the names and Elisha following Elijah just works out perfectly. It's hard to remember what order they're in, but you always know Elijah and Elisha, they go together. Whatever the reason, God chooses Elisha. And so Elijah goes up and as he's passing, he throws his mantle on Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And Elisha leaves everything right there to follow his new master, the prophet. This all happens in 1 Kings chapter 19. And then interestingly, we don't hear anything more about Elisha. Not a word is said about him until what we read today, 2 Kings chapter two. He doesn't appear again until this story when it's time for him to take over from his master. What is Elisha thinking throughout this passage? It's obvious that he knows what's about to happen. If he didn't, you've got this other group called the sons of the prophet, which are other prophets who follow Elijah and they keep telling him over and over again, hey, Elisha, Elijah's gonna leave you today. Just, just in case you didn't know, Elijah's about to be taken away. And you can kind of tell a little bit how he feels because of how he responds. He keeps saying, yeah, I know, I get it, just shut up. He's obviously anxious, so anxious, he does not wanna talk about this right now. And on top of that, he also seems a little desperate at times, desperate to be with Elijah. Notice how in verse two, Elijah tells Elisha, I'm going on to Bethel, you stay here. And Elisha refuses, I will not. And he follows Elijah. So this happens again, Elijah says, okay, this time I'm going on to Jericho, stay. And Elisha follows on, Elisha, I'm going to Jordan, over the Jordan River, stay here. It's like Elisha is like a stray dog or something. And Elijah just keeps telling him, sit, stay, Elisha. And he refuses. He won't leave his master. And there's something desperate about that. Once they cross the Jordan River, and it becomes clear that Elijah's time of departure is imminent, Elijah finally turns around and asks Elisha, what do you want? You've been following after me. You won't leave me alone. What do you want from me? This is a key moment in this story because Elisha knows he's about to take over Elijah's mission and he can ask for anything he wants. What would you ask for? If Elijah was standing right here and he said, I'm leaving, this mission is yours. What do you want from me? We could think of a lot of things to ask for. We could ask Elijah, hey, Elijah, tell us what the most effective church growth strategy is. What's it gonna be for 2019 in Plano? Or we could ask Elijah, Elijah, give us a little bit more wit and intelligence because some people think Christians are rubes, you know, but when they meet us, they'll think they're more thoughtful and sophisticated than they thought. Or maybe at this point, you might just think, Elijah, Give us a curate that won't ask us ridiculous hypothetical questions when he gets up there preaching his first sermon. <laughs> All good options. Elisha, though, asked for something specific. Notice, 
He says, I would like a double portion of your spirit. A double portion is the portion of inheritance that Deuteronomy says is due to the firstborn son. So Elisha saying, I want a double portion shows that he knows he's about to take over the role and responsibilities that a firstborn son would have. He knows he's going to take Elijah's place. But what does he ask for a double portion of? He asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elijah responds by saying, you have asked a hard thing of me. Why? Why is this such a hard request? Why can Elijah not just give Elisha what he's asking for? Why can't he give him a yes or no answer? Why does he tell him that he must wait to see whether he'll be there when Elijah's taken away and see those chariots and horses to know whether his request is granted? The reason why Elijah refuses to give a yes or no answer is because what Elisha asked for him is not something that is his to give. He can't grant the request. It doesn't belong to him. What Elisha is asking for to be on him is the spirit that came on all true prophets of Israel. The spirit that empowered and enabled them to fulfill the mission of what it meant to be a prophet. Elisha is asking for the spirit of God. And so Elijah cannot grant the request. The only one that can is God. That's why Elijah tells Elisha, you must wait. Wait to see whether God himself will open your eyes to see these fiery chariots and horsemen that are going to descend. Wait to see whether God will grant you this request. What does this story have to do with us? I began the sermon by reminding you that we have been given a mission. Like Elijah, like Elisha, we have inherited that mission from someone who went before us. And if we take that mission seriously, like Elisha certainly took his, then it has the potential to cause some real anxiety and fear. For what should happen if we fail? What will happen if we do not have the courage of those great missionaries and martyrs of the past? What will happen if we are not dutiful in raising our children in the faith in the way that, at least for many of us, our parents and grandparents did for us? The mantle of the church's mission has descended round from generation to generation and it has been handed to us, but if, what if we can't bear its responsibility? If you pay attention to some of the statistics about American religious life, it seems like there are some reasons to be concerned. In the past number of years, quite a few demographers and sociologists have pointed out a rising percentage of the population of people who describe themselves as unaffiliated with any religion. You might have heard about them before. They're called the nuns. They're called the nuns because they're the people who check the box marked none on a survey that says, what is your religion or what religion do you identify with? In 2015, the Pew Research Center did a survey and found that 23% of American adults now identify as unaffiliated with any religion. And that's really quite remarkable growth because in only eight years before, in 2007, Pew did the same study and found that at that point, 16% of American adults 
said they were unaffiliated with any religion. In numerical terms, that's a rise of 20 million people in eight years who identify as having no religion. And if you look at the youngest generation of adults, born from between 1981 and 1996, that figure of 23% goes up to 35%. What this means is that there is a significant decrease in the number of people who identify themselves as Christians, and it appears to be a generational phenomenon. The younger a generation appears to be abandoning the Christianity, the religion of their parents and grandparents. So what does this mean? Does this mean we are failing at our mission? Have we dropped the baton that's been handed down to us? Have we not been able to bear the weight of that mantle? And if so, what do we do now? If you ask these questions, it's easy to begin to start feeling a little anxious and fearful. And it seems that our response to hearing statistics like these is often to immediately start figuring out what we can do to change them. How can we attract more people to church? What new method can we use to prevent our young people from losing their faith when they go off to college? But maybe that is not the first thing we should be asking. Maybe that should not be our first response. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, nothing, there's certainly nothing wrong with being intentional or strategic about how we go about our mission, how we go about the mission of sharing the good news and loving our neighbors. But when we begin to feel anxious about that mission, when we begin to fear, and our first response is to try to figure out what the problems are and how we can fix them, like the good Americans we are, then we have missed the lesson that Elisha has to teach us. We have started to think about the mission we have been given as something we accomplish. It's our mission, our responsibility. But in the beginning of the sermon, I, I pointed out that the mission we have been given is to participate in another's mission, in the mission of God. And while God has invited us to participate in what he is doing, it is not primarily our responsibility to accomplish it. He is the one who does that. God is the only one who can bring light to those who are people in darkness. God is the one who frees those who are in captivity. And it is God who builds his church. That's what Jesus said to Peter. I will build my church. And as Elisha recognized, the only way that we can be effective in doing our part is if God empowers us by his spirit. But there's a difference between us and Elisha. Unlike him, we don't have to wait or wonder to see whether God will give us that spirit or not. Because unlike him, we don't follow the old Elijah, but a new and greater Elijah. About 900 years after Elisha stood on the bank of the Jordan watching his master ascend into the sky, another group of disciples similarly stood watching their own master ascend. And like Elisha, they had given up everything to follow that master. And also like Elisha, they had been given a mission to carry out. But whereas Elijah was not able to guarantee Elisha the gift of the Spirit, Jesus told his followers that he himself would send the Spirit upon them. And he kept his promise. I told you that I like reading about church history. 
Well, the book of Acts is the first and earliest record we have of the history of the church. In its pages, we read about the first generation of Christians and how they were faithful to the mission that they had been given. In the book of Acts, we are told about the first great missionaries, people like Peter and Paul and Philip and Barnabas, and the first great martyrs of the church like Stephen. And we're told about a lot of other unnamed Christians, people who showed hospitality and who shared their possessions with those in need, who devoted themselves to prayer and to the teaching of the apostles. And we see the church grow through their ministry. These early Christians were the first generation of those who responded to the call of Christ to be on mission. And it is their mission that we have received and we now continue. But even though there are lots of stories in the book of Acts about these early believers and what they did, they are not the primary actors in the story that Acts wishes to tell. You might think from reading it that the main actors are Peter and Paul, but even they play a secondary role. The main actor in the book of Acts, the main agent who advances the church's mission is not Peter or Paul or Philip or any other disciple. The main actor is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit in Acts who is primarily responsible for the growth of the church. It is the Spirit who gives people like Peter and Paul and Philip the courage that they need to share the good news. And it is the Spirit who opens the hearts of people like Lydia and Cornelius to hear that good news and to respond in faith. And it is the same Spirit, that same Spirit that was in the book of Acts, and that same Spirit that was present on Elijah and came on Elisha, who is here today with us, at work with us, among us, and through us. This is something we must never forget. If we are to be successful in carrying out the mission that God has given us, in sharing the good news of Jesus, in loving our neighbors as ourselves, in raising our children, in bearing one another's burdens, if we are to be successful in that mission, we will only do so through the power of God's Spirit. So take heart. You have been given a mission. We have all been called to mission. But the success of that mission does not rely on your or my creativity or ingenuity or hard work. It is God who is at work among us and through us. And for that, thanks be to God. Amen.